Happy Teach Us. Welcome to the We Teach Us podcast, a space to reimagine our education system. This is episode five, and I'm your facilitator, Ryan Dalton. Let's get started. Do now. All right, for today's Do Now question, I ask people, what do you think of when you hear the term white supremacy? Um, I think of ignorance and fear and guilt and uh, afraid of somebody trying to take something from you. But it's mostly ignorance. And some of it's stupid because some people have been educated and they still decide, you know, that they're going to be like that. And some go to church and it throws me off when you go to church and you read, read the Bible. I read the Bible four times and everything I read, it says the number one thing is love, love thy neighbor. And um, you can't love your neighbors you like that, you know. White supremacy. Mm. The first thing I think of. Uh, white supremacy. Hmm. Um, when I hear the word white supremacy, I I, I just feel I, I think about um, one race feeling superior over other races. Uh, as it relates to me, um, I, I guess as an African-American, I, I look at it as uh, a group of racist people, prejudiced, uh, biased, bigot, um, people who continue to want to keep people down, other races down, so, and automatically, me being from the South, it just automatically comes up as, the KKK. Oh, racist. Straight, just complete racist. Uh, my nickname for it is TT, Trailer Trash. Um, but um, just supremacy, they think they are above every race. They, they think they are supreme regardless of their income. They think they are above everyone. Oh, lots of ignorance. <laughs> and... Um, uh, ju just ignorance and people who, ugh, I don't know, I guess fear power disruptions um, and just, you know, well, obviously they think that they're better because of their, their ethnicity, their skin color, their culture. Racist. I think of... Um, one race being dominant over another race. This Week in the News. All right, this is This Week in the News, and here with me I have my number one co-teacher, my real-life partner, and my wife, Ronnie Dalton. Hey. Hey. We're both a little tired, as probably a lot of people are from traveling back home to visit family over the holidays. Oh, yes. <laughs> Five hours in the car with two kids three and under fun stuff oh yeah but that's not what's in the news today <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh i'll go ahead and start it off today my first article is uh and and i'll just say that this article has been out for a couple of weeks now um it gained national attention and i've seen a lot of conversation online about it and i just find it disgusting that this occurrence happens 
Um, so I really wanted to talk about it. Okay. It's uh, from the Chicago Tribune. The article is titled The Quiet Rooms and subtitle Children are being locked away alone and terrified in schools across Illinois. Often it's against the law. Wow. I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs from the article. The spaces have gentle names, the reflection room, the cool down room, the calming room, the quiet room, but shut inside them in public schools across the state, children as young as five wail for their parents, scream in anger Mm. and beg to be let out. The students, most of them with disabilities, scratch the windows or tear the padded walls. They throw their bodies against locked doors. They wet their pants. Some children spend hours inside these rooms missing class time. Through it all, adults stay outside the door, writing down what happens. In Illinois, it's legal for school employees to seclude students in separate spaces, to put them in isolated timeout, if students pose a safety threat to themselves or others. Yet, every school day, workers isolate children for reasons that violate the law, an investigation by the Chicago Tribune and ProPublica Illinois has found. So, this is a, a practice that is technically legal in Illinois if the child poses a threat to themselves or to other students or staff. Mm. Um, But this investigation has revealed that they are not just secluding students for legal reasons. Um, So I'm going to read a little bit more from the article. Children were sent to isolation after refusing to do classwork for swearing, for spilling milk, for throwing Legos. School employees use isolated timeout for convenience, out of frustration, or as punishment, sometimes referring to it as serving time. Oh my. So when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, I mean, now even terminology is being used. First of all, a lot of these rooms, if you see the pictures in the article, a lot of these rooms look a lot like solitary confinement cells. Oh my gosh. Um, And then even the terminology used Related to this is the same terminology that's used in prisons, um, serving time. Wow. It says that for this investigation, ProPublica, Illinois, and the Tribune obtained and analyzed thousands of detailed records that state law requires schools to create whenever they use seclusion. The resulting database documented more than 20,000 incidents from 2017-2018 school year and through early December 2018. Of those, about 12,000 included enough detail to determine what prompted the timeout. In more than one-third of these incidents, school workers documented no safety reason for the seclusion. Wow. Without doubt, many of the children being secluded are challenging, the article says. Records show school employees struggling to deal with disruptive, even violent behaviors such as hitting, kicking, and biting, Workers say that they have to use seclusion to keep everyone in the classroom safe and that the practice can help children learn how to calm themselves. They're trying to say that, you know, there are instances, some of the students that they're working with that they seclude are sometimes difficult to work with. And they're trying to say that this seclusion can be used for the good. Um, As a special education teacher, both of us, um, we know that there are times when students can become, you know, uh, a threat to themselves or to other students. And there, there are times when they might need to be removed from the classroom. Right. But it's a totally other thing to put them in another room and lock them up. Right. It's another whole other thing to do that just for minor infractions and not even for the reasons that those rooms are supposedly existing. This really is an admission on behalf of 
the staff in these schools that they don't have the support that they need to deal with students. Absolutely. Right? Like, I mean, I would say why not just hire, but I know that there are, it, there are many reasons why this is not happening, but there's so many alternatives than to just lock a kid in a room without support from an adult, somebody who is trained in de-escalation, somebody who is trained in helping them to calm down. Like, they're not going to be able to do that by themselves. No. And I mean, it's clear from what you're saying, these students are screaming and crying while they're in these rooms that this is not helping at all. And then what type of messaging is this sending to the kids? I mean, not just about themselves, right? Like they shouldn't be a part of the broader community. They, you know, deserve to be locked away by themselves, but how they feel about school. Right. And it, and it's like, like you said, it, it, they the kids themselves might not have the tools to de-escalate themselves. Right. So locking a, a child who is in an emergency distress. state, they're in distress, in a room by themselves is not going to necessarily calm them down. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it might make them amp it up a bit. Definitely. And it, it, to me, it kind of reminds me of when someone is like upset and and possibly, you know, enraged and you tell them, calm down, like right. that never helps. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's just this article is absolutely heartbreaking. I'm talking, you're talking about kids as young as five years old who are being locked in these rooms. And some of the stories, so they share actual stories from actual students oh who have been locked up. And I mean, there was one incident of a of a child who was naked in the room, oh and um, he was just asking, "Give me my clothes, please oh. give me clothes." And it's just like, how in the hell is this happening in a public school in America? I mean, this is absolutely unbelievable that you're sending your kids to school where they are supposed to feel some type of sense of love and care, and they're being traumatized. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's it's completely absurd. It's abuse. I I think it's abuse. I don't. I do not think it's a practice that should occur at all. At all. Um, in the article, they also talk about certain advocates against this practice. Say that there are multiple other ways that you can address this. And I know for a fact, as a special education teacher, that absolutely there are. And that even in times where I have had to, like I said, remove a student from a situation. I will go with that student and I am with that student and I'm talking with them and working them through that moment right. rather than locking them in a room by themselves and leaving them there. I mean, it, it's absurd. It's putting a student in a position to feel alone, like they have no one, that they don't matter. And it just, it doesn't make any sense. It should not have been a practice to begin with. And it's not effective yet. They are continuing to do this and it just... It really is disgusting. It, it is. It's absurd. And, you know, even as I started this reading about this in this segment, my eyes just filled with tears. And, you know, it, there's a lump in, in my throat because this is just. Uh, it's, it's unimaginable. It's unimaginable. And um, reading the article is so heartbreaking and hearing the stories from the actual students. Um, it, it's just it's atrocious. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, hopefully we can get some mass action together and just completely that it is completely eradicated. This practice is eradicated in the States because there's no, no place for that. Definitely not. All right. So what's your first article? <sighs> okay. <laughs> um, 
Okay, my first article is coming from AOL.com, and the title is Richard Sherman Donates Over 27000 to Clear Student Lunch Debt. Awesome. Well, awesome that he did that, not awesome that that right, exists. Right, that exists, that he has to do this, or he decided to do this. Okay, the article says, student lunch debt is a major problem nationwide, as is childhood hunger. Schools will allow students to carry lunch debt to make sure they're able to eat instead of going hungry, but parents aren't always able to pay it back. Some school districts have taken to punishing students with lunch debt, mm. cutting off their ability to do activities with their classmates simply because their parents can't afford to pay, Ugh. which is absolutely ridiculous. Absurd. Like they're being penalized for something that really is beyond their control. But it says here, an estimated 75% of all school districts in the country ended the last school year with lunch debt, and it's a growing problem. Sherman is doing his part to help students, and he spread love and a generous spirit of Thanksgiving in the process. So he donated $20,000 to the Tacoma, Washington public school system to eliminate student lunch debt. Awesome. Yeah, so I just think it's incredible that he is giving money to help eliminate this student debt. Yeah, I mean, this is just uh, a growing problem around the states, and I've seen a lot of articles that are similar to this where... We just see students that are getting ill treatment or whatever it may be due to this lunch debt. Mm -hmm. And we actually, um, though there are many problems in the schools in the area that we live in, um, one of the positive things here is that they have introduced free lunch for all students in the city. And that just completely takes away that that issue exactly you don't have to put this pressure on parents who might not be able to afford lunches then or like unfairly putting the pressure on the students exactly whose parents can't afford the lunches um and i don't understand why this can't just be a national thing right i don't i don't think it's a it's a big deal for us to also cover the cost of a lunch in a school day that we are forcing kids to go to you know like it's not like the kids have a choice to go to school we are forcing them to go to school which means they're gonna have to eat there right some of them might be able to eat at home or whatever right but we're forcing them to be at a school and now and then penalizing them when they can't pay for for lunch exactly but you know thankfully there's people like richard sherman who (laughs) you know are taking up this charge to help students in situations that can't really afford it. Yeah, hats off to him. All right, so my second article isn't really about K-12 through education. It's about a university, but it is relevant for various reasons. Okay. Um, the article is from the Washington Post, and the title is Silent Sam Will Stay Off the University of North Carolina Campus as the school turns the statue over to a Confederate group. So uh, you might remember Silent Sam was toppled by protesters, I believe it was last year. It's a Confederate monument. Uh, It's this Confederate soldier. These protesters did not think that there was a place for him. As we saw this kind of wave across the nation where people were starting to say, you know, pull down these Confederate monuments and things. Uh, So they pulled it down. um, And... After that, the Sons of the Confederacy and other, you know, pro-Confederate people were upset and up in arms, and they actually 
had a lawsuit against the school. Wow. So I'll just read a little piece from the article. So it says, Silent Sam, the monument toppled by protesters at the University of North Carolina last year, will be owned by a Confederate heritage group and will remain off public university campus under terms of an agreement announced Wednesday. The decision allows the statue to be preserved, but keeps it away from the public university where it had become a flashpoint. The Confederate statue, which occupied a prominent spot on the flagship campus, has been a source of tension for years. For some, it was revered as an icon of Southern history and a monument to the school's alumni who fought in the Civil War. Wow. (laughs) For others, it was regarded as a symbol of white supremacy. Absolutely. After years of students' protest and efforts to remove the statue from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill campus, a crowd toppled Silent Sam in August 2018. So the question that the article poses is, since then, you know, what's happened? Well, the North Carolina Division of Sons of Confederate Veterans sued the University of North Carolina system and the Board of Governors over the disposition of the monument, which has been in storage since protesters tore it down. Wow. So the Sons of the Confederacy, they they want this monument up or whatever. They're, they're not happy. Um, and so they actually, there was it went to court and there was an agreement. And this agreement, in my opinion, is absolutely absurd. Okay, so the article says, The agreement announced Wednesday and approved by a judge, according to the UNC system, gives the North Carolina Division's Sons of Confederate Veterans all rights and title to the monument and requires that the monument not be maintained in any of the 14 North Carolina counties with the UNC institution. The agreement's just like, Okay, this monument now belongs to you racist people. You can have it, but you can't put it in any of these okay. counties, you know, where UNC is. Okay. Great. Perfect. You keep know, your monument. Keep, keep your monument, put it keep in your, your house. Monument away from where anybody else could see it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, even that I think is ridiculous. Right. The monument should Definitely. be just broken up, but whatever. Okay. Right. So they got it. Now listen to this part. It also requires the university to fund an independent charitable trust with wait for it, 2.5 million in money, not from the state, to be used for care and preservation of the statue. No way. So the university is going to have to pay 2.5 million to see that this statue is preserved. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. I think it's bizarre that we're still in a place in 2019 where we're questioning whether or not we should have up monuments and statues that are celebrating people who fought to keep slavery in America. I think it's absurd that that's even in question now. Absolutely. It's just senseless. Senseless. All right. So what is your second article? The second article is from the New York Times opinion, and the title is Detroit schools are unconstitutionally unequal. Hmm. Okay, so the article says, For much of the past decade, school children in Detroit were forced to endure conditions that can only be described as abhorrent. Hmm. In many schools, classroom temperatures exceeded 90 degrees during the spring and summer and neared freezing during the frigid Michigan winters. Hmm. Mold was endemic in some school buildings and vermin was common in others. Hmm. And it goes on to further say, and this is unheard of for me, but in one school in 2015, the math teacher resigned just a few weeks into the school year. The solution in this case, a high performing eighth grade student was tasked for a month with teaching both seventh and eighth grade math. Say what? 
<laughs> right. I mean, okay, so I'm all for student-led learning <laughs> involving students in teaching, but this right. is a totally different situation. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You take an eighth grade student and you have them teach seventh and eighth grade for an entire month. No teacher. I mean, it doesn't say there was any adult teacher there with the student. It's that's wild. The article says in the decade that followed the state's takeover, the bottom fell out from under Detroit's schools. The schools physically deteriorated, as did students' academic achievement. And it says in every year that the National Assessment for Educational Progress have been administered since 2009, Detroit fourth and eighth graders have ranked dead last in the country when compared with students in other large urban districts. Mm. In each of those years, only about 5% of Detroit's children were ranked proficient in math or literacy. Wow. It's ridiculous that there are any kids in this country that are exposed to this. I mean, we're, we claim to be, and this is not my quote, but other people's, the greatest nation in the world. Right. Um, and yet we have schools that are literally falling apart around our students. Apparently, we have eighth graders teaching <laughs> lower classmen. Right. It's not right. Yeah, it's just incredible that the state said, you know, we can do better than this and intervene. And it just ended up getting even worse. Uh, I guess on a positive note, they do talk about some hope for the Detroit schools. And it says the local board of education has regained control of the schools and the main school district staffed by many of the same hardworking teachers who endured years of state neglect has posted impressive academic gains under superintendent Nikolai Vitti. I think that's how you say it. Um, but Detroit schools are digging themselves out from those years of state-imposed unconstitutional mismanagement. Wow. Well, I'm I'm glad that they're making some some good steps forward. Definitely. All right. Well, that was this week in the news. Thank you, uh, Ranice, for joining me as you do every week. Oh, thank you for having me. Now it's time for us to get some rest. Oh yes. <laughs> All right. I do. With the campaign and election of our current president, we have seen a rise in public displays of white nationalism and white nationalist language, hate, and violence. Many people who have rightly been shunned to the outskirts of society for their overtly racist views have been emboldened by this presidency and have moved from the shadows to the spotlight. With this and numerous racism-fueled events and atrocities, we've seen the term white supremacy enter the mainstream conversation. There is nothing new about the term. There is nothing new about its multiple manifestations. However, what is maybe new is that people who have possibly never had to utter the term white supremacy, never had to consider its ramifications, never had to question whether they themselves are indoctrinated with it, never had to think about its existence, have now been forced to do just that, whether willingly or not. Every time a race-fueled atrocity makes headlines, and more and more throughout the course of this embarrassing and appalling presidency, we see white people on all sides of the political spectrum say things like, This is not the America that I know. This statement, though perhaps actually true for them, does not speak to America of then or now, but rather to the lack of knowledge those people who express those sentiments actually have about their country. 
America was founded on white supremacist values and violence established through the genocide of indigenous people built on the backs of the enslaved. Allegedly not knowing a terrible, viciously racist America is not knowing America at all. And I can only assume that anyone who has had the benefit of not knowing America in that way does not know it in that way because they were protected and coddled by a privilege that was afforded to them by the very institutionalized system of domination behind that very racist America with which they claim to be unfamiliar with. It is also possible that those individuals do not even know themselves. Likewise, as the term white supremacy has entered mainstream conversations, we've seen how people have grossly misunderstood what it is, whether intentionally or not. In The Art of War, Sun Tzu said, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. White supremacy is the enemy. We all play a role in either perpetuating or dismantling it, whether consciously or subconsciously. And it is greatly important that we understand white supremacy and how it operates both in and around us. In order to win, we have to know our enemy, we have to know ourselves. White supremacy as an institution and an ideology is old, established, and stubborn. It will not just concede or go away without a fight. White supremacy is arrogant, absurd, and violent by nature. It takes equal levels of arrogance, absurdity, and violence to maintain and uphold. White supremacy by nature is a lie, a farce. It can only be maintained and upheld with more lies, hateful, malicious, absurd, desperate lies. Until recently, we'd seen a decline in mass overt white supremacist extremist action, though still very present and apparent in systems of our society. White supremacist extremists still existed and organized, of course, but more in the shadows and generally tried to hide behind anonymity. All the while, white supremacy as an institutionalized system of domination was still raging in our systems, legislation, and communities. A decline of mass movements of white supremacist extremists gave the illusion, to many not knowing better, that white supremacy was inactive in our country. People ignorantly equated white supremacy to extremists, saw less action from those individuals and groups, and thought racism is over. The misunderstanding of white supremacy as a system of domination and not just an ideology held by individual extremists makes conversations about dismantling white supremacy more difficult. Having a first black president who served two terms did not help but to reinforce this false idea that we somehow live in a quote, post-racial America. Average white people, even well-meaning, though equally complicit in the system, see extremists as the scapegoats and feel absolved of involvement and implications in the broader system of oppression. Now, we embarrassingly and most unfortunately have a presidency that has made white supremacist extremists comfortable again. We've seen a rise in average citizens, celebrities, and government officials sharing public, unabashed, egregious white supremacist views. And again, we've seen average white people, especially white liberals, attempt to absolve complicity by pointing at and blaming white supremacist extremists. There are calls to end white supremacy, but it seems that many people are still confused what we're even talking about when we say those words. In order to truly dismantle white supremacy, we must truly understand it. We must understand white supremacy as an internalized ideology, an institutionalized system of domination, not exclusive and or limited to extremists, not merely maintained, upheld, and perpetuated by white people. Let's discuss this and also make connections to the school setting.
White supremacy as an internalized ideology. The most simple definition of white supremacy is that it is a belief that white people are superior to those of all other races, especially the black race, and should therefore dominate society. This belief, though a complete sham, is a belief that the founding fathers of America held, a belief that this country was built on. People are both knowingly and unknowingly indoctrinated with this belief, and it manifests itself in their language, actions, and ways of being. When a person is knowingly and willfully indoctrinated with white supremacist ideology, we see these principles exhibited through overtly racist speech, actions, decisions, and violence. People who consciously hold white supremacist ideals are usually upfront, blatant, and unabashed in their beliefs. They speak in derogatory ways about black and brown people. They act in discriminatory ways against them, and they are capable of unprovoked, unprompted race-based violence. In the school setting, there are superintendents, administrators, teachers, counselors, social workers, nurses, support staff, students, and parents who knowingly hold white supremacist beliefs and therefore people of color in the school system all over this country are subjected to these individuals' harmful attitudes, language, hate, actions, and violence. It might manifest itself through a teacher's disparaging language and actions towards students of color. It might appear in the form of white kids bullying their black and brown peers. It might occur through discriminatory language and actions white educators use about and towards their colleagues of color, and in any other way imaginable. However it looks, those people enacting that white supremacist violence and terror are knowingly holding those white supremacist beliefs and willfully acting on them. But they are not the only ones who can hold these beliefs and act on them. White supremacy, as an internalized ideology, can also be unknowingly held by people who are unconsciously indoctrinated with them. This can often be a more dangerous form merely based on the individual's unawareness and or denial of indoctrination. A large majority of white people in America would probably fit into this category. They would not consider themselves racist. They might be, quote, well-meaning. They would probably make reference to the ever-infamous trope of a, quote, black friend if called out on certain white supremacist language or actions. Yet white supremacist beliefs, deep in their subconscious, guide how they speak, act, and interact with people and the world around them. These beliefs might come out in overt ways, or they might only show themselves in more covert displays, taking on the form of microaggressions and more subtle forms of racism. The white teacher who feels the need to quote Medea or use African-American vernacular when speaking with black colleagues and or students. The white educator's illogical lowering of expectations of students and or colleagues of color. The white person's expectance of a black person to be a knowledge base or representative of an entire black culture. The harmful connotation of assumed lower intelligence of students of color who do not speak English as a first language. And these are only a few examples. Whether a person holds white supremacist beliefs knowingly or unknowingly, their lives are guided by these principles, and implicit bias influenced by these beliefs often determine how those people will interact with people of color around them. This might be a white lady clutching her purse tighter as a black man walks by, a police officer fearing for his life in the presence of an unarmed black teenager, or a boss who doesn't even give a look at an application of a person whose name she considers to be a name of a black person. In the school setting, we see this implicit bias guide student-to-student, student-to-teacher, teacher-to-student, and staff-to-staff interactions on a regular basis. A white educator might perceive certain actions of black students as a, quote, threat or disruption, while simultaneously not seeing any issues with white students who partake in the very same behavior. A white administrator might speak to a black educator in a more demeaning way than he would speak to other white colleagues. 
A white educator might speak and act differently toward and about parents of black students than they would about white parents. This white supremacist ideology is passed down and taught both implicitly and explicitly, intentionally and not, as the next generation of humans soak up those messages both consciously and subconsciously. Parents and teachers who hold white supremacist beliefs do not have to intentionally teach their children and students these ideas and beliefs, because principles are most often not learned through what is said, but through what is observed and felt. As James Baldwin said, children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. White supremacy supremacy as an institutionalized institutionalized system of domination. Like other ideologies that sit at the foundation of other systems of oppression, white supremacy also operates as an institutionalized system of domination. In America, the institutionalization of white supremacy began with the original documents, laws, policies, government, and quote, founders of this nation. White people, and specifically white men, obtained power through violence, theft, crookery, and force, and built entire systems and institutions around themselves that would enable them to maintain and uphold this power. Though attempts at downplaying and denying this history is constantly made by people who benefit from this oppressive system, it is well known that the Constitution showcases racist language and did not include all people when it was originally written. It is no secret that four out of the five first presidents of the United States of America owned enslaved people, that everything is named after those slaveholders, and that their images and names are on our currency. Whether acknowledged by white people or not, our society unfairly and inequitably tilts in the favor and benefit of white people, simultaneously disenfranchising and oppressing people of color. White supremacy as an institutionalized system of domination impacts, guides, and is embedded in all of our systems and societal inner workings. Education, healthcare, housing, employment, social services, government, the legal system, and all of our systems are influenced and compromised by the indefensible, preferential, white supremacist bias, favor, and violence. For example, through his work against racial bias and injustice in the legal system, Brian Stevenson, founder of Equal Justice Initiative, eloquently traces modern-day injustices in our criminal justice system from slavery to mass incarceration. Mr. Stevenson says that slavery in America never ended. It merely evolved. He said, slavery didn't end in 1865. It just evolved. It turned into decades of terrorism, violence, and lynching. And the era of lynching was devastating. It created a shadow all over this country, and we haven't talked about it. We haven't confronted it. And that shadow continues to impact our current systems and institutions today. This is why, in the school system, we see... A disproportionate number of black students disciplined, suspended, and expelled from school compared to their white peers. A disproportionate number of black students placed in special education programs compared to their white peers. A lower graduation rate amongst black and brown students compared to their white peers. Entire cities, districts, and schools inhabited by black and brown students that are literally dilapidated, falling apart, and failing students. That black students are often concentrated in schools with fewer resources and less qualified teachers, teachers with lower salaries, and novice teachers. Black students are less likely than white students to have access to college-ready courses. Even when black students do have access to honors or advanced placement courses, they are vastly underrepresented in these courses. Black students are less likely to be college-ready than their white peers. There is evidence of systemic bias in teacher expectations for black students, specifically with white teachers holding lower expectations for black students. 
entire discriminatory policies and codes of conduct, specifically police black students' hairstyles. Almost all subjects' curriculum and content hold a white supremacist bias and perspective. In every single aspect of our public education system, we can see how white supremacy has been established to benefit white students and educators and disenfranchise and oppress students and educators of color, and most specifically, black students and educators in America. White White supremacy supremacy is not not exclusive and or limited to extremists. Our misunderstanding of white supremacy, along with our complicity in its perpetuation, often lies in the belief that it is limited to extremists. As previously stated, oftentimes when the term white supremacy is used, people immediately jump to thinking we are talking about white supremacist extremists like the KKK, neo-Nazis, the Proud Boys, and so on. As also previously stated, white supremacist extremists often serve as scapegoats to average white people who might hold the same beliefs, whether consciously or not, but don't act on them in such an extreme manner. With this lens, racism and white supremacy is only framed as the most extreme and egregious situations, language, actions, and violence. This is not true. Even in this current political climate, though it might not feel like it, extremists still make up a minority of people in our country. If white supremacist indoctrination was exclusive to extremist groups and individuals, we wouldn't see its impact on the systemic level that we do. White supremacist indoctrination infiltrates the minds, hearts, and lives of everyday people. This is how it is upheld and maintained. White supremacist indoctrination is just as present in the white suburban soccer mom as it is in the KKK member, though maybe more covert. And as I said before, that covert racism can be even more dangerous because it exists in denial of itself. At least the extremist is open and honest about racism. Bell Hooks made a great point about this in her book, Teaching Community, A Pedagogy of Hope, when she said, One of the bitter ironies anti-racists face when working to end white supremacist thinking and action is that the folks who most perpetuate it are the individuals who are usually the least willing to acknowledge that race matters. In the school setting, we might focus on the terror brought forth by the white supremacist extremist school shooter or the extreme overtly racist bully whilst underplaying the daily racial terror black and brown students and educators are subjected to at the hands of, quote, average, maybe even well-meaning white people. White White supremacy supremacy is not not merely maintained, maintained, upheld, and perpetuated by by white white people. Though it is important to not move into the repulsive territory of victim blaming, it is important to note that white supremacist ideas and principles can be held by more than just white people. Black people and non-black people of color can also be indoctrinated with white supremacist ideas and act on them. Some examples of forms of this in the school setting are respectability politics carried out by black educators in attempts to police black students' language, clothing, hairstyles, and other ways of expression and being colorism that occurs amongst black students and non-black students of color, and even self-hatred students of color might hold based in white supremacist beliefs and thinking. I believe it is our role as educators to work to dismantle white supremacy both in and around us. We have to understand our enemy. We have to understand white supremacy and the multiple ways it works both in and around us. We have to know ourselves. We have to do the often difficult work of looking inwards, reflecting, and seeing the ways we hold white supremacist beliefs and the ways in which we act on them. We must do the intentional and ongoing work of eradicating our thoughts and beliefs of white supremacist influence, calling it out in our communities, and engaging in active work to dismantle it on an individual and systemic level. We must dismantle white supremacy. We do.
This episode's guest is community organizer and educator, Zeli Imani. Zeli has served in diverse K-8 settings as an English and math teacher and curriculum developer. Most recently, Zeli has been organizing against anti-black state violence with the St. Louis-based Millennial Activists United and hashtag NJ Shut It Down, a social justice network of college and high school students in the state of New Jersey. Zeli is passionate about education, passionate about social justice, and he's a true change maker. All right. Thanks so much, Zelly, for uh, joining me and being a guest on We Teach Us podcast. Thanks for uh, joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show tonight. Awesome. So let's just get going. Tonight, the focus of the episode, we're talking about white supremacy as an ideology, but also as an institutionalized system of domination and how it has infiltrated every crack and crevice of our lives and our systems and our institutions. We're specifically, obviously, focusing on how that affects our school system, our students, our teachers, and the system at large. So my first question for you is, what are overt ways that you've seen white supremacy, white supremacist violence and terror manifested in the education system? Wow, that's a great question. Um, as both an educator and a product of the school system, I've been able to not only witness it um, at, from the outside, I've also been, unfortunately, um, been a victim of uh, the harm that white supremacy does to um, black and brown students within the school system. But more specifically, I've been able to see the, the practices, the policies, and the behaviors by um, administrators, by faculty, and uh, by the, the, the school district at large and how it plays a part into the school to prison pipeline. Okay, so you 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 can see the direct link, and and you said as a, a student when you were a student, but also as an educator now. Right, as a as a student and as an educator, and this it's kind of funny how as a student you sometimes don't necessarily understand what's going on, and it's not mm. until you become an adult and are more informed about how anti-blackness as you mentioned, is not just uh, something that we see with police brutality, but it's something that affects all institutions because white supremacy is a system of domination and it dominates uh, all institutions and all aspects of our culture and society and it infiltrates into the, the school system. So you start to reflect on how these institutions create these policies and enforce these policies that are um, what we now term the school-to-prison pipeline, all right, that back in the 90s, they pretty much erected what's known as the zero-tolerance policies, and this is pretty much set up the school-to-prison pipeline. For those mm. not familiar, the um, zero-tolerance policies pretty much single-handedly um, discriminated, particularly black students, right? Uh, we know that black students don't commit or commit the same type of infractions as their white peers, but they get punished more hard, more severely for those same infractions. So you see black students doing things, uh, getting suspended or even expelled for doing minor things such as being maybe disrespectful or, or not following orders or rolling their eyes or, you know, uh, or, or things of that nature. They're not um, violent acts. But there's still acts that uh, that the teacher feels, for whatever reason, threatened by or um, annoyed by, 
to a point where they become uh, suspended or expelled. So we see this violence upon um, black and brown students, and particularly our, our black students. And it wasn't until I, I got older that I realized that this was happening to me and my peers. And I've seen it, right, that when our students or our peers are uh, consistently suspended or consistently um, yelled at or consistently punished for behavior that is just normal child behavior, um, their, their morale goes down, their, their love for learning goes down, and the, it pretty much pushes them out of the school. And we see that when you get pushed out into schools, you're pushing them into prisons and pushing them into an early graveyard. Hmm. So um, you, you've mentioned school to prison pipeline. You mentioned all these zero tolerance laws that, that lead to this. I think there are other things that especially I think white people maybe don't even know about or can't relate to. There are other sort of policies and things. Uh, one that just came to mind was policies specifically regarding um, black students' hair. Uh, both girls and boys. Can you speak to that a little bit? Policies that might like come from the white supremacist perspective that uh, specifically police black students' hair? Right. Um, we've seen a lot of this happen within the past couple of years of these policies, particularly sometimes in charter schools or private schools, which um, police the, the hairstyles of black students. Um, they'll say things uh, about the fact that they're not professional or they're banning braids, they, buy, they ban um, cornrows, they ban natural hairstyles. Um, certain hair limbs of black boys are, are banned, right? Um, and we actually seen kids actually being kicked out of school because they have long blocks. Mm. Um, and that, that ha has happened like so many times. And I remember even recently, maybe a week or two ago, um, this one black boy who had long hair, the 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 principal pretty much, you know, uh, I don't want to say suspended him, but pretty much said that he can't come back until he cuts his hair. That if he wants to have his hair long, then he needs to register as a girl and, and wear dresses. And mm. this is like the things that he said, like verbatim. And these are the things that are pretty much you only hear about targeting African-American or black students where the policing of their of their hair and the policing of their their dress style as well we've seen students being suspended for having do-rags or wearing do-rags at school we've seen students who have maybe you know those um nice hair styles where they have you know the cuts in it and designs in it right and then we have like administrators taking a sharpie and filling in those designs in and saying no mm. you can't have designs in your hair and that's that's violence and that's the anti-black violence that that we're talking about yeah so i mean that kind of stuff is just it is something that i think a lot of many white students white educators don't think about per se um but these are the larger systemic ways that white supremacy is enacted um what are what are some of the more subtle ways that white supremacist violence and terror is manifested in the system? Maybe microaggressions and some of the more subtle forms that you've seen as an educator and a student. Right. I think a lot of times with white supremacy and how it functions that we're taught that a white supremacist is someone that says the N-word or someone that is like a Ku Klux Klan member or maybe a neo-Nazi or that's what racism is and that's what white supremacy is. And so in that regard, a lot of people, a lot of white people say, well, I'm not a, a, a racist because I'm not those things. And they don't realize that it's not necessarily about saying the N-word or 
about being a neo-Nazi or or being out like a, a right winger. It's about these little actions that you do do, which we call, you know, microaggressions towards black people or other people of color. And this is about how do you treat black people in comparison to you treat other people. And I've seen this firsthand. I've seen white teachers be more harsh towards black students than they are for non-black students for the same exact behavior. So, for Hmm. example, I've seen one time where one of my students refused, a black girl refused to go back into another classroom to retrieve her notebooks because he said that if she goes back into the classroom, she's going to be yelled at. And I'm like, wow, you rather, you rather not bring your homework here to my class, you know, than go in there and get yelled at. Because wow. you think that you're going to be um, yelled at. And then I said, let's see. And then another student who was non-black raised their hand and said, they also left their book. Can they go in there? So this non-black student went into the classroom and retrieved her stuff and came back. And we're like, well, did the teacher yell at you? And she said, no, she didn't yell at me. She let me go in there and get my stuff. And mm. me thinking, like, okay, like, all right, you go in there, too, and get your stuff as well. So she went in there to get her things, and she got yelled at. You know, wow. She got yelled at because it was called irresponsible and all these other things. And it's just a shame that right back to back, we've seen how – and the girl, I unfortunately, was able to see for herself the treatment that she got versus the treatment of the other student when they both went to go to get their things. And these are the things that we're talking about um, with microaggression as well as zero tolerance policies, that it should be okay for a student to come back into your classroom to get their things to be successful in the next classroom, right? Like that should right. be okay. It shouldn't be something that uh, you call this your child irresponsible or whatever the case may be. Kids forget things, but they're trying to be successful in the other classroom, and you shouldn't prevent that from happening. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, we're talking about attitudes. We're talking about even just looks on people's faces. Sometimes you see people's face shift when they see a certain student. Um, and unfortunately, as as you say, I've seen it too. Yeah, and, and the worst part about it, I'm a black educator and a black male educator, and sometimes I'm the only black male educated in the building and sometimes the only black educated in the building. And the things that they these teachers say in the lunchroom will, like, shock you, you know, mm. about what they say about our students, particularly our black students. Like, I remember one teacher has said, you know, so reference to another student, a black student, that she's going to end up on the pole one day. And it's like, wow, mm. like, you really had the audacity to, to say, like, this young student who's no more than, like, 10 or 11 years old is going to end up on a pole one day. Like, wow. why would you say such a thing? Or why would you look at a student like that or or put that on a, on, a, on a student and not see the potential and the greatness of the student and work with them to ensure they are able to reach that greatness instead of just discounting them out right away? Wow. And it, that sort of uh, reminds me of a lot of research that's been done on how specifically white educators and caretakers see um, black children as more grown than their white peers mm-hmm. or more adult, which is so wild and ridiculous. But if you're talking about a 10 year old, as teachers saying about a, that about a 10 year old, it's ridiculous about any kid, but like, that's just completely absurd. Right. Definitely. Is. Um, okay. So 
you you kind of touched on this a little bit when you opened up with the last question about how white supremacy, when we speak about it, a lot of people misunderstand and think we're talking about the extremists, these KKK, Proud Boys, neo-Nazis. But we know that it it is, as we've been speaking about, it's integrated into all of our systems. Um, it's a ideology, but it's also deeply embedded in our minds, is deeply embedded in our lives and in all of our systems. Um, what would you say to the white educator who only views white supremacy in the context of white supremacist extremism and they kind of absolve themselves of complicity and participation on a systemic level? Right. Um, I would definitely say that it's not an indictment of you, right? It's not an indictment of you or your character. So realizing that you may um been harming black students or other black people or realizing that you may have been exhibiting some type of anti-blackness doesn't necessarily mean you're an evil person or a bad person because we all have internalized anti-blackness because we live in an anti-black society. There's all the things that we hear on the radio or see on TV. So we're enunciated with all these, these images and all these, um, these messages. So it's going to take a while for us to unlearn and even learn our, um, what we've done in the past. And I think that we have to be uh, comfortable in ourselves and accepting that, okay, me as a black person, I can say that, you know, I've had anti-black feelings. So if me as a black person, if I can say that, you know, I experienced or I've done things that's anti-black or I think things that's anti-black, then I'm, I know for a fact that a white person has done the same thing as well, right? Mm. Because we've all been seeing the same media. We've all been raised in the same culture. And I think that as a white person, you have to realize, okay, like I've said some things that may be anti-black or I thought some things that may have been anti-black. That mean I'm an evil person, but what can I do right now to unlearn those things and uh, and be um, and be better? That's great. So I... Also, I'm going to ask this next question, but simultaneously say, I, I don't think it's, I think we put the onus on black people to solve the problem of racism. And I do see it as a white problem. And it's something that white people need to be working on. But I want to pose this question to you just to get your point of view on it. So there are people who say, well, slavery happened all these hundreds of years ago. Uh, it's over, nothing, you know, <laughs> there's no racism. We Obama was president, you know, they yeah, say this yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. What What do you say to those type of people? And some of those are educators. Um, you know, I've worked with those type of white people who say that type of stuff. What do you say to them who completely try to just back away from the idea that any of this is even existing in society? Right, you know, um, I would definitely say that, yeah, slavery... Um, existed hundreds of years ago, but it didn't end hundreds of years ago, right? That my great grandmother, who passed maybe 15 years ago, her grandfather was uh, a slave. Mm. So it's, it's not far fetched. And I always remember being a child being just so amazed that here I know this woman who knew a slave or an enslaved person, and that was that was that was mind boggling to me back then, and still is mind boggling to me now. And we know that even after slavery was abolished, that black people were still um, still being impacted by these, these racist policies, these black codes, and everything that these educators should be knowing about or probably even teaching in their, their history classes. Right. <laughs> you know, so we, we know that the, the oppression that black people have experienced has not really 
uh, uh, ended. It has changed, right? It has matured, it has morphed, but it hasn't necessarily ended. Like, we're not in necessarily physical bondage or change anymore, but the oppression and the bondage still remains. Mm. So you, you kind of touched on also uh, white educators who don't realize that they've caused harm or don't maybe don't aren't aware of that. Um, and I, I know on a lot of conversations online and in articles and things, we talk about what well-meaning liberal white people uh, you could call, say, white saviors, well-meaning white people. Um what are ways that you've seen well-meaning liberal white educators maintain and uphold and perpetuate white supremacy in the school system? You know what? There's so many different ways, but there's something that really sticks out in my mind right now. And that's when I was in high school and I went to high school a while ago. And, and um, that's when the movie Private Ryan came out. Yeah. And I was, I was a huge war fan back then. Like, I used to love war movies, me and my dad, but, my dad, he was, like, really conscious as well. And we both recognized the fact that, you know, Saving Prior Ryan, like, had no black people at all in the in the movie, right? There was, like, mm. not even one black face as well. And I remember my teacher, who I loved, I loved this dude, a, a white male teacher, and we was talking about Private Ryan, and I missed it in class that, you know, that we, there was no black people in, um, in the film. And he literally was saying, he said something to the fact that there was no black people in the war. And I was just like, what? And I, I, I mentioned, you know, like, all the different wars that black people have been fighting in, like, and the Tuskegee Airmen and whatnot. And I remember he said, yeah, maybe there was black people. There was, like, maybe there was flying blimps. And, like, what? I remember, like, the kids, the non-black kids just, like, laughing. And I felt so small and I just Man. sat down and I still remember that to this day because when we went back to um I guess do our individual work at our workstation like I sat in the same spot just like mad at him and he came over and tried to talk to me because I guess he seen like the impact I made um, he had on me and to that day it was like I never looked at him the same like me and him never had the same relationship just because mm. the way that he he knew the role that black soldiers play in all the wars, but he at that moment tried to erase it. Wow, that's that's wild, and it's it's also it. So what's interesting to me is, I mean, you are an educator, um, and it's interesting that one of the things that stands out the most to you is your thoughts from or your experiences as a student um and how it impacted you and to think about there's a quote that i'm gonna horribly mess up but i think about it often <laughs> i think it's maya angelo who said uh something to the extent of they they won't remember what you say or do but they'll remember how you made them feel mm -hmm. and i just think about uh the black and brown students all over the country who go through this type of you you being one of them and you're speaking about this go go through this type of experience day after day after a day and just how that must stick with them and and go deep into them um right but yeah it's just it's kind of powerful for me to 
hear you talking about this because, I mean, I I have you on the show because you're a, a, an amazing activist that I respect, um, an educator, but you're speaking from your experience as a student and that's what stands out to you the most. And I think that's what a lot of us maybe don't realize the 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 violence that is enacted on our students and how it's impacting them on a deep level to where you're here this many, I mean, I'm not trying to call us old, but I also remember when Saving Private Ryan came out and, you know, it's been some years and that still sticks with you. Yeah, it, it sticks with me. And um, like you've mentioned, it, it's one of those things where you have to think about all the different experiences that black people have uh, went through as, as kids and what has stuck with them and shaped them. It could be like one incident that like completely like shaped their, their life. So we see how vulnerable our children are to the harm of adults. So that's why it's so important that educators are are extremely careful about what they say and what they do to our, our youth, you know, and be super intentional about how they treat them. I totally agree. So kind of on the flip side of the coin, I don't know if it's a coin, but let me just say that. But um, so some people are under the impression that white supremacy and white supremacist ideologies can only be perpetuated by white people. And you spoke about this a little bit earlier when you talked about black people can also hold anti-black views and, and thoughts. Um, are you able to speak to how people of color can also contribute to the perpetuation of white supremacy and white supremacist ideologies in the school setting? Sure, of course. Um, I'll definitely even go back a little bit when we talk about the zero tolerance policy laws, right? That if you look across a lot of urban areas, a lot of urban school districts that still have these zero tolerance policies, and you look at the school boards, the school boards aren't all white commissioners, right? The school boards are usually black and brown people. So it's actually black and brown school board commissioners who are still upholding a lot of these zero tolerance policies. And that speaks to the fact that a lot of us are still upholding white supremacy even long after a lot of these white elected officials have long gone, right? Way after a lot of these white um, residents have moved out of the city and now the city is majority black and brown, we still have these white institutions or white supremacist institutions or white supremacist policies still in place harming our kids. Yeah, and so <clears throat> what are what are some other ways maybe – um, that we see. So I, I know, for instance, like respectability politics, how does that play into with specifically with educators and students? Have you seen that play into uh, sort of white supremacist ideas and agenda in, in, in the school setting? We see that play a lot in the school setting, particularly with enforcing the dress codes, right? That mm. um, we've seen I think it was maybe last year in a charter school at Newark, some students came to school without a belt and their pants were not sagging at all. <laughs> the pants mm. were not sagging, the underwear was not showing. It was just that they did not have the dress code of a belt or they needed completely black shoes or completely black sneakers. And if you had a little white on it, you was that was a dress code violation. And instead of allowing these high school students still into the building, they refused to let these kids into the building. So you have all these high school students just like wandering around the neighborhood because the school would not let them inside. 
Mm. And that became like a really big issue because like why are you actually um placing our kids into harm's way instead of putting them into the school building which is supposed to be a safe place. And this is all about, you know, respectability politics about how students or particularly black students need to be dressed in professional at all times or they need to be dressing like this way or they need to be dressing like that way. And it's like this idea of you have to be tougher on black students because uh, the world is tough and you need to get them ready for that type of um, toughness. Yeah. And it, it kind of reminds me in it, when I was working in New York uh, in Brooklyn, we had it was very often that the black male educators were called to discipline mm. black students. Have you experienced that as a black male educator? <laughs> yeah, definitely. That is, that is, no matter where you are in this country as a black male educator, you're seen as the disciplinarian, right? And I remember my first year teaching as uh, a black male teacher, I went into the classroom and another teacher came in and she was like, wow, like they gave you all the um, problem kids. And then she looked around the room and she said, oh, the only one you're missing is um, Nairon. And I'm like, nah, he's in the bathroom right now. <laughs> like, I <don't> <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. And it was like, literally, they just stuffed me with all the children who they thought had behavior issues because they thought because I was a, a man and they needed a strong black man or a disciplinarian to like whip them up into into shape. Wow. <laughs> that's 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 wild. So uh shifting gears just a little bit here, you're you're teaching in Patterson, New Jersey, and I'm not really sure what you all have uh state test wise, but for instance in uh many states like in New York we have the New York Regents and Alabama, you know, they have certain state tests and, and things that they have to do. And that's true for most states. I think that they have a, a, a certain curriculum, certain state tests that we have to teach to. Um, and we know that history, especially American history, and, and, and it's also true for global, is still very much taught from the imperialist white supremacist perspective. Um, what would you say to teachers who need to teach to a standard and need to teach certain content that has been determined by the state that needs to be taught, but also don't want to perpetuate just these specific perspectives of this white supremacist, like this imperialist white supremacist perspective. How, how can educators overcome that? Do you have any ideas on that? Um, I'll address it in two different ways, right? That even though you're a teacher and you have to teach a particular standard, right? That doesn't necessarily mean you have to teach, teach a particular um, um, content, if that makes any sense. What I mean is that you, your standard may say, you know, the student needs to be able to comprehend, you know, a non-fictional text or something like that, right? Right. That's the standard, but it doesn't tell you what text they have to do. And so it's still pretty much up to the school district and sometimes even up to the, the, the teacher themselves to pick what content to expose their children to. So it's really sometimes up to the district or the school building about what are the books or what is the reading material that they're exposing their kids to. And unfortunately, a lot of times these are not um, material that is reflective of the diversity of that building. Mm. So, so for instance, one... 
one year in Brooklyn, I walked into my colleague who who teaches um it she teaches US history and I walked into her room and she had just decorated the front kind of <laughs> above the board and I looked up and it is like all these white men from the left side of the room to the right side of the room and it was sprinkled with a uh Martin Luther King here and a Rosa Parks there and a couple of white women here and there um but it was just almost just grossly majority white men up there right and i said what's going on like what is this what's what's happening and she goes that's that's us history according to the regions that's what i have to cover so uh-huh. in in that case where a teacher a, a teacher feels like okay i have to teach this because i want them to do well on the state test what are there any ways around that? Like, it, besides fighting on a broader level to push for change of textbooks and all that stuff, what what can a teacher do? What are what are ways that they can still sort of teach the content that the kids need that is explicitly or specifically about these white men, but get you know also counter and dismantle these ideas that that's the only perspective. I know a lot of times as an educator, I know you experience this as well, that it feels like we're tasked to do so much and we don't have enough time to do it. Yeah. Um, and we we'll always put more responsibilities on us and there's more things that uh, are requested of us to do. And we feel like we're overburdened and don't have enough time to do it. So a lot of times, a lot of educators wish they could do so much, but they don't, they feel they don't have the time. They feel they don't have the resources or the capacity to do things of that nature. But I do really encourage our teachers to really try to carve out some space, especially if you have the opportunity to allow students to um, read more diverse content. There's Mm. times where you can um, teach the particular standard, and maybe you could squeeze in like a small little book club, right, in your like 15 minutes or 10 minutes of that teacher's block. Just allowing the students to read whatever other book content you have in the classroom, which you curated yourself, so that they can't be exposed to other world history figures. Particularly in my class, I teach math, right? Straight up math, third grade (laughs) math. (laughs) But in my corner now, I have a small library. And that library, for the most part, is super diverse. Is the characters are either black, Latino, um, like Arab with Muslim, and that's that's pretty much it. And the the characters they're still you know mathematicians or engineers or you know inventors or whatever the case may be, but they they reflect the student body. And when they have like ten minutes or five minutes or some downtime, they're more than welcome to go grab a book and flip through it. It's really awesome. about being able to show the kids that, hey, you know, this, if I'm doing in math, if I'm doing good in math, there's a future for me, right? Or there's other people who will look like me who like math and they're being able to do things or get out of our city. And I just want to be able to expose them to that. That's awesome. I, I love it. And I think the other thing, too, um, that I really want to mention is, unfortunately, the most startling fact for me is that our kids come to school behind, even mm. in kindergarten. Like black students come to kindergarten already a year behind. And that to me was like, 
crazy. Like, how can you go to school already a year behind? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you should all be starting at, like, day one or, like, a fresh slate. But, unfortunately, right. they're already uh, a year behind because a lot of them don't go to preschool or a lot of them are not getting the same type of, um, you know, stimulation or education in their homes as some of their um, other white peers. So it's, by the time they're already in kindergarten, they're already a year behind. So when wow. by the time they're in first grade, they're like a year and a half or two years behind. And it's real hard for a lot of kids to close the gap, especially since in the 90s we changed the way that um, reading has been taught. We moved a lot away from phonics. So a lot of kids in third or fourth grade are still struggling how to pronounce words or sound out words or really comprehend text. So by the time they're in fourth grade or fifth grade, sixth grade, they will never be able to catch up and they're struggling readers for like forever because we robbed them of the opportunity of learning how to read through the phonics system. Right. And I can I can speak to that on a high school level. I mean, I'm I'm teaching ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade, and I do see students who are still on second, third, fourth grade level. Um and so I I think the the more years go by when those deficits are not being properly addressed, the the bigger the gap gets and right. it just grows and grows. So yeah, that's that's definitely something that we need to address. Definitely. And and also the part that a lot of our state tests right now, uh, I know New Jersey and probably elsewhere, even our mathematics section is really um, reading-based. It's a lot of um, word problems, a lot of words that need comprehension. And a lot of our students um, struggle now on the math part because they can't read the directions, they can't read the word problems or the math task itself. So it's a lot moving away from just simple computation and more being able to apply those skills that you learn um, in real life situations. All right. So I, I do have a couple more questions for you. Um, my next question is not talking about curriculum and things like that. So we've talked about the many forms that white supremacy kind of shows itself in the school setting through microaggressions or overt, just overt straight racism, bias, um, and then the policies and procedures that specifically target black and brown students. Um, but generally as educators in our classroom, when we kind of, we have control over what we do in our classroom, what are ways we can dismantle white supremacy in our classroom? What are just practical ways? I think some practical ways that we can um, attempt to dismantle um, white supremacy in a classroom is by, I think that there's maybe three, at least three ways that, anti-blackness or white supremacy manifests itself in the in the school building, all right? That's between um, student-to-student relations. There is teacher-to-student relations and then the administration-to-student relations. So those are the three relationships that we have to be able to monitor. So you have to be able to monitor the relationships between the students and if the students themselves are experiencing or causing harm to one another through anti-blackness, right? Mm. So you have to keep an ear out if you hear another student, you know, um, call another student the N-word or say something about their dark complexion or say something about their hair. You just can't ignore those type of things. You have to be able to um, call those um, those actions in and be able to bring those parties in so that you be able to educate not just them but the whole class about their, their harmful behavior or the harmful words. And then you also have to um, be able to 
monitor your interactions with your students and also monitor the actions and the words of your peers. So if they do say things like, oh, that, that student is going to end up on a stripper pole one day, you have to be able to call that, you know, your peer out on it. Yeah. And the last thing is when the administrator to student relationships is if students are misbehaving or doing things or getting written up in, in class a lot, and you see that predominantly the black students, you have to be able to call that out as well to your administrators and try to find a different way than um, suspension or punishing the student for things that um, aren't necessarily um, violent behavior, but typical student behavior of being um, defiant or a little bit disruptive in class. Great. I mean, those are very practical ways that someone can already just walk in tomorrow and start working with that. Um, and that's on a classroom sort of classroom and school level. Uh, when we talk about sort of a system level, so when we're talking about the education system, so more kind of city, state, national, um, how can we begin to dismantle white supremacy on those levels? Right. So there's different ways you can start to dismantle it on um, many levels. So I'll start with the city level. When we talked a lot today about zero tolerance policies, a lot of school districts right now, they are actually banning um administrators from suspending students from K through two, right? That a student in kindergarten should not be uh, suspended or, or, or first grade should not be uh, suspended. Like what can a possibly, what possibly can a kindergartner be doing, you right. know, to get, to, to get suspended? So if they're not bringing a gun, if they're not like physically harming someone, then like why are they being suspended from the classroom? And if, that is definitely um, predominantly the black students, then we have to be able to, you know, have some type of um, um, talk on that. And I think these are some simple things that educators and um, advocates can fight for right now, you know, to put a hold on suspending at least the K through two students, and then maybe even try to fight for, you know, suspending K through eight students Stop suspending K through eight students for quote unquote being disrespectful or being defiant. You know, right? Because that's the loose term that gets used a lot. Um, right. When you when you spoke earlier about sort of the more subjective punishments that are done in the school that that tend to be biased towards black students, that's the one that's used as defiance or disobedience. Um, Okay, so zero tolerance, really focusing on those and trying to sort of get rid of those in our areas and in our states. Um, what are, are there any, can, do you have any other ideas or? Yeah, um, um, I think the last thing I'll, I'll leave off on is that some states have been pushing to have mandated African-American history infused into the curriculum, but yeah. a lot of those times those aren't enforced. So you can try to um, push the legislation to um, mandate African-American history be taught in your school district, whether it's a, the city level or you try to push for it on, uh, on the state level, because it's very important. It's not for African-American students to learn about the history or the, or the, um, the work that um, African-Americans have contributed to um, society, but everyone should be able to learn 
about um, our contributions and our our culture and our and our history. Right. I mean, I, I think it's even just as if not well, it's definitely equally. Let me not say more, but it's equally important because whatever harm it does to black students who are sitting in the class only learning from this white supremacist, specifically white supremacist sort of patriarchal, this talking about white men in our dominating our history, whatever harm that does to black students, it equally kind of swells the head of white students sitting there where everybody that they're learning about, all these people that are canonized who I mean, we can have a whole debate on another episode about whether they're even heroes or not, but, uh, you know, it, I'm sure it swells the heads of the white students um, who are only hearing about people who look like them. And I think a lot of times when we talk about representation, people see it as like, we need representation. Black students need to hear black voices, which is true. But I think, as you said, all students need to hear black voices. All students need to hear diverse voices. Um, and that that sort of, I think, maybe begins to combat the people who benefit from the oppressive systems. It, it, it combats that narrative that gets validated over and over again that they are superior or better or right. whatever it may be. I completely agree. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I said it earlier, uh, and I really mean it. I... I know you mostly from Twitter, um, where I think a lot of people know you from, but um, I really always respect your voice. And what I love is you you are really for the people in a sense that you amplify people's voices, you amplify people's projects, you're constantly doing that. And then I, especially as of late, I mean, I'm sure you've been doing it for a long time, but I always see you out involved with something. You're getting involved, you're you're active, you're, you've gotten involved in your local government, you, you're involved in protests, you're involved in all that. Uh, and I really just respect the work you do as an activist, as a community organizer, as an educator. Uh, I really respect it. And I just wanna say, I appreciate all that work and I see it and yeah, uh, keep it up and yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks. And I, I think that's the funniest thing about it is that, uh, even my students or the kids in my school um, see it as well, you know? Like, I remember recently a student whispered, you know, to another teacher, oh, he's famous, right? <laughs> and the teacher was like, who, Mr. Thomas? And she was like, he was like, yeah, he's all over Facebook. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, too, because it'll be, the, it'll, it'll be the, the tweets, the screenshots of the tweets that go viral on Facebook, so... <laughs> it's it's funny social media etiquette but uh yeah i i was speaking to somebody about you being on the show and and they're not on twitter and i was like i'm sure you know and and they said wait is it does he have a tie it does he have like a gray sweater and i said yeah that's that's him <laughs> so and that's why i kept it like so long i kept the same profile picture for eight years yeah that's all you have you might have the record on twitter i don't know <laughs> i think so i ain't changing it <laughs> <laughs> all right Zelly. well i i really appreciate you being on the show um definitely is, is there any way anything you have that uh listeners can support you at is there any anything that anybody can do to support you and your work sure um please follow me at Zelly imani on twitter and on instagram 
um, I'll be sharing my Amazon wish list if you feel if you feel you know so inclined to support um, my students by purchasing some books for our library. All right, but yeah, I really appreciate it, and um, yeah, if if there's anything that I can do or whatever, just let me know. And yeah, all right, sounds great, brother. All right. Hi, um, my name is Autumn Hall, and I'm a second-year student at Georgia Southern University. And if that school's name doesn't ring a bell, it is the university where um, the book burning incident happened. And um, I just wanted to talk about how actions like the book burning are basically tolerated by schools and universities' administration when they fail to condemn the student's actions. Um, since the events have happened, there's been multiple, like, um, I guess, action plans that have been um, introduced to promote diversity, but nothing is going to change as we've experienced. Since I've been there, there's been multiple um, incidents where race has been um, just a huge issue. Um, nothing is going to change unless there is um, can the students are being condemned for their actions openly. Um, unless there is a punishment, like the environment is still unsafe for black and brown students. And um, ultimately you are, um, you're not showing your solidarity to these students when you refuse to stand on a platform and condemn these actions that are wrong. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. For those who are unaware of the book burning incident Autumn spoke of, she's referring to an incident that happened at Georgia Southern University in October of this year. Cuban-American author Janine Capo Crusette visited the campus to speak about white privilege and diversity after students were assigned her book, Make Your Home Among Strangers, to read for their first year experience course. Upon Crusette's visit, white students became enraged at the ideas of white privilege and other things the author spoke of. After her lecture, many white students took their copies of Crusette's book to a grill and burned them. This incident went viral after multiple videos from the book burning were posted online. Conversations about white supremacy, white privilege, and diversity are important, specifically and especially in predominantly white institutions. And responses like these are uncalled for and only maintain and uphold the oppressive dominant culture. As Autumn said, occurrences like these are harmful to students of color and school administrators should not tolerate these race-based temper tantrums from people who benefit from oppressive systems when they are called out on their privilege. We have to do better. Is it your homework? To learn more about Zeli Imani and his work, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Zeli Imani. If you'd like to contribute to an item for Zeli's classroom, you can find the link to his wish list on the extended learning page of our website. Some books related to this episode's topic that I recommend are The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, the two-part series The Invention of the White Race by Theodore W. Allen, How We Fight White Supremacy by Akiba Solomon and Kenria Rankin, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijoma Alua, and Ta-Nehisi Coates lays out an interesting look of the construction of whiteness in his book Between the World and Me. For links to the previously mentioned resources, links to the articles mentioned in This Week in the News segment, and more information and resources about this episode's topic, visit the extended learning page on weteachuspodcast.com. Exit ticket. 
White supremacy is not just a buzzword or something that is limited to extremists. It is both an ideology held by individuals and an institutionalized system of domination that is embedded in all of the inner workings of our society, benefiting white people and enacting oppression and violence on people of color. It might have been established long before we entered the world, but now that we are here, because we are all impacted by it one way or the other, it is our duty, most especially the duty of white people, to combat it. White supremacy as an institution and an ideology is old, established, and stubborn. It will not just concede or go away without a fight. We have to understand how it operates both in and around us, and we must engage in the ongoing work to dismantle it. As educators, we have to work to dismantle white supremacy in our classrooms, school communities, and the broader system. We have to start where we are and do what we can. Change begins with us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of We Teach Us. Visit our website at weteachuspodcast.com. Follow and interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at We Teach Us. Like our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash We Teach Us Podcast. And call in and leave a voicemail to give your input for the You Do segment at 615-348-7303. Lastly, subscribe to, rate, and review We Teach Us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on and spread the word. We We Teach teach us. Us.